Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. This week we're talking about our great purpose, Isaiah chapter 43. Let me ask you, when was there a time in your life when you asked yourself, what am I doing here? You know, maybe before uh, running a marathon for the first time, or starting a brand new job, or maybe deciding to change careers and you're, and you're, uh, you're going back to school to start a brand new degree, or Maybe you ask yourself, what am I doing here <clears throat> right before you decided to skydive out of a plane at the age of 80? <laughs> or uh, maybe lying back on a dentist's chair right before a root canal, or, or even worse, lying on an OR table right before a colonoscopy. You're thinking, what am I doing here? What on earth am I doing here? That's a question most of us ask at some point in our lives. What's the meaning of life? What is my purpose? In fact, Rick Warren actually wrote a best-selling uh, book called The Purpose Driven Life, tackles that very question. And countless people have discussed that question through the ages. And you know, many of them coming up with different answers to that question. Take for example, the conclusion of one celebrity who had endured cancer and 17 months of both radiation and chemotherapy. Uh, talk radio host Robin Quivers said this. She said, what I learned is very simple, that your life matters to you. It really doesn't matter what you do with it, but it should be what you want to do with it. Not what your mother or father or friends or society want. It should be I-directed. And that's the only purpose for being here. Now, sadly, there's a lot of people out there with that same worldly misunderstanding of purpose, selfish people whose, whose lives are very I-directed. I, me, mine, got to get mine. And so they, they seek fulfillment in a lot of different things. You know, it could be materialism. It could be relationships, money. And, and let's be honest, those things can bring momentary satisfaction but the emptiness always returns because in them, there's no real purpose in life. Now, there's another famous Robin, Robin Williams, when asked what life was all about, he said, the thing that matters is others. Way beyond yourself, self goes away. Ego, bye-bye. There are a lot of amazing people out there and a loving God, and other than that, good luck. That's what life is about. And you know, Robin Williams was so close. Yes, loving and serving others is wonderful. And that ought to be a natural byproduct of our love for God. And, and Robin was certainly right about there being a loving God. But, you know, neither one of those Robins was really quite on the money when it came to pinpointing our great purpose. Now, thankfully for you and I, we can actually discover our purpose in life in the pages of Scripture, where you'll find that we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the big idea behind today's study. 
We were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we're in Isaiah 43. Uh, there, you know, we see that God inspired the prophet Isaiah to address a lot of different situations in uh, Judah, which was the southern kingdom of God's people at the time. Here, they're actually in exile in Babylon because of sin against God. They're suffering judgment for having uh, broken the terms of their covenant with God. But in Isaiah 43, something interesting happens. There's a shift in tone between chapter 42 and 43 that's pretty breathtaking. It's a shift from judgment to grace. In fact, the whole chapter describes the Lord's redemptive, restorative grace towards his people. And in the midst of these declarations we're going to read in, in verses 1 through 7, we find three points of instruction to the people of Judah that we ourselves can apply today. Okay, here's the first one. Embrace a relationship with God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. Now, Isaiah 43 addressed God's relationship with these Israelites. Now, we're speaking specifically of the former residents of the southern kingdom of Judah. But, you know, even though God's words were directed towards them, I mean, they still hold a lot of meaning for us today. Now, think about what verses 1 and 2 tell us about God's connection with his chosen people. God identifies himself as the Lord, the God of the Israelites. And then he announces that they should not fear in fact, he gives them three reasons why they shouldn't fear. In fact, it, it kind of boils down to this. I mean, creation, redemption, and possession. But let, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, we know that God created them. God created them and formed them. In fact, that word formed, it's the same Hebrew word that you find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, for the creation of Adam. It's a word that's, that's used to describe a, a potter who's shaping something out of clay. So he, he framed us, he fashioned us. That's why the, uh, the psalmist could say in Psalm 139, 14, that I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Now, you recall last week we discussed about how the Lord created us, how he sustains us, how he not only formed us, but how he is not a detached, uninvolved creator, but is a loving caregiver who is involved in the lives of his creation. And I don't want you to miss the, the sense of intimacy and purpose in God's choice of words here. God created you. And he created you to live in relationship with him. And if you have a relationship with the Lord, guess what? He's still forming you day by day to make you more like him, just as that potter forms clay. So God created them. We also see that God redeemed them. In fact, it's because he created them that he can redeem them. Now, specifically, he's talking, he, he makes the, uh, he cites the example of redeeming them out of bondage in Egypt. 
Now that word redeem, it means to buy back. In fact, Isaiah frequently referred to God and his role as redeemer in the book of Isaiah. But basically he's saying this, he's saying, I redeemed you out of Egypt and I'm going to redeem you out of Babylon. Now we're going to talk more about God's redemption in just a few minutes. So he created them, he redeemed them, and God called them. He called them by name. They were his possession. That's the third reason why they should not fear. God had called his people by their name. I mean, God referring to them as, as Jacob and Israel, that reveals his, his personal interest in them and his grace towards his people and his great purpose for them. See, God naming Israel, it's, it's, that's a special act. I mean, it, it's kind of like, you know, the mom and dad who have a naming ceremony for their newborn child. God gives Israel his own name as members of his family. I mean, to be named children of God, that reveals a family relationship, a special covenant relationship with God. Now, I, I want you to note what he says here at the ver end of verse 1. You are mine. You are mine. Now, I had my very first girlfriend in fifth grade. Her name was, ironically enough, Christy. Okay, different Christy. Uh, she was more like a, a sneak preview of the, the great Christy that was to come, the one that would steal my heart, the one that would become my life mate 14 years after the fact. But, but see, my elementary school sweetheart, she did an interesting thing. She gave me a necklace to wear that bore a giant letter K. K for Christy. Because we wanted everyone to know that I was hers and she was mine. And I know that's really silly, but you see, there's, a, there's kind of a comfort in knowing that you belong to somebody. There's an old hymn, some of you might remember the words. It says, loved with everlasting love, drawn by grace that love to know. Spirit sent from Christ above, and you do witness it is so. And this full and precious peace from his presence all divine and a love that cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. You are mine, God says to the Israelites. But guess what, Christian? He says the same thing to you too. You belong to him. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So if you're a Christian, he has called you by name. He has brought you to himself. You have been adopted as members into the body of Christ. You are his and he is yours. Now, despite their situation in Babylon, the Israelites, they still had a covenant relationship with, with God. They still belonged to him. And God assured Israel that despite the judgment that they were currently enduring because of the disobedience, his personal presence would still be with them. You know, whether through waters that might overwhelm them or rivers that might sweep them away, fires that might consume them, flames that might scorch them, God says, I will be with you. Now, put yourself in their shoes. 
you know, for the, for the people of Judah, you know, verses 1 and 2, that could, that could be seen as both comforting and troubling. I mean, think about it. It does express God's presence, God's protection, God's enabling. But at the same time, he's saying, hey, you're still going to have problems. And of course, it's symbolized to this imagery of, of deep waters and rivers and fires and so forth. So it, it's still troubling. There's still troubles to deal with. Yet even in these difficult trials and circumstances, God has promised to be with his people. And that ought to be encouraging to us to know that God, the one who has redeemed us in the past, has also secured our future, no matter how difficult our situation might be. Okay, so let, let's take this and let's, let's, let's personalize it just a bit. Okay, what sort of uh, fire and water has God allowed into your life to refine you? I mean, how has God used specific trials in your life to teach you more about himself? Okay, maybe God taught, taught you about his care through maybe bringing you through an illness or a time of injury. Maybe you learned about God's provision at a time when you're in, your finances were just so very low. Or maybe you'd lost a job and he's given you a new one. Maybe you learned about God's presence when he provided encouragement during a time when you were sorely discouraged. Maybe you learned uh, about God's strength to persevere as you saw him work in members of your family. Maybe as you watched your children struggle with di difficulties, maybe in, in school or in their relationships and how God strengthened them and brought them through. Or maybe you experienced God's forgiveness when he brought you back after you strayed. See, these are all marks of a God who desires a personal relationship with you. And in verses 1 and 2, we find that like Judah, he has called us by name that we might enter a relationship with God. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we discover that if we're in a relationship with God, it's because we can, number two, enjoy the ransom of God. Look at verse three. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel and your Savior. I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Notice right off the bat here that God is mentioned by name. See, in verses 1 and 3, the Hebrew word for Lord there is actually Yahweh. Now, anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you see the name Lord, L-O-R-D, all in capital letters, that's just an English translation of God's name, Yahweh. Instead of the more generic title of Elohim, Yahweh is that personal name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, when he identified himself as the great I am, the self-existent one, the one with no beginning and no end. And so God's name must have been really reassuring to his people because the use of his personal name, that implies a special personal relationship between God and his people and also his activities on their behalf. 
reveals his love and his concern for them. Now, I think before we go any further in our study this morning, we need to clarify all of this, this Egypt, Cush, and Seba business because Isaiah's reference to those nations can, can kind of puzzle some readers. We don't know the exact historical context of this passage. We don't know uh, just 100% for sure you know, uh, about how these three African nations were involved. But one thing seems pretty clear. That God is managing their restoration. God's managing their restoration. I mean, the text does say that God gave these nations as the Israelites ransom. Now, it does appear from history that this promise was fulfilled after the return of the Jews from captivity. Now, Babylon was conquered by Persia. And then Cyrus, the, the Persian king, liberated the Israelites, allowing them to return from Babylon back to their homeland. And the Lord rewarded the Persian king Cyrus for liberating them by permitting him and Cyrus's son Cambyses to possess Egypt and the neighboring uh, kingdoms of Cush and, and Seba. But you see, uh, the, the, the possession of those lands... Yeah, it was, it was a lot more than just a mere gift. In fact, there's a couple of key words here in the text that really give us a better understanding of why this wasn't simply a gift. And verse 1, God says that he has redeemed the Israelites. Now, the Hebrew word there is ga'al. In English, that's G-A-A-L, ga'al. The basic word picture is of someone who's being liberated from slavery or someone who's being rescued from a, a very threatening situation. But then in verse 3, God says that he's given a ransom for them. Now, the Hebrew word there is kofer. It, it means payment that's demanded in order to redeem or to rescue a person. So it can mean a ransom price. It can mean an atonement. It can mean a, a covering. Well, I will atone for your transgression. You know, you have a debt, I'll cover it. I'll pay the price because I'm your Savior. But twice here in verses 3 and 4, Isaiah says that will God, God will give others in place of his people. He will give others in place of his people. That God will give men in exchange for the Israelites. That his sons and daughters might be restored to the land. But why would he do this? Why would he do this for this rebellious people? We see the answer in verse 4. Because in his eyes, they were precious. They were honored. And because they are loved. In fact, that's the third thing you see about God in these verses. God is motivated by love. God's promises are motivated by his love. His chosen people are so precious in his sight that he would pay a high price for their freedom and their restoration. And not only did God promise his protection and presence for the Israelites, but also his blessing. And you know what the greatest spiritual blessing of all is? That's to know and to enjoy God's love. And guess what? That's something that you and I get to enjoy, too. If we want to, 
Now, unfortunately, we oftentimes get way too distracted by things that just, that take our eyes off of God, keep us from enjoying God's love. Um, again, it, it could be any number of things. It could be materialism in our culture. It could be getting caught up in the goofiness of our political scene. I mean, it could be our pursuits of pleasure, whether that's entertainment, whether that's relationships, whether that's substance abuse. I got to tell you, I got a real serious problem with oatmeal chocolate chip cookies. I can't seem to break the habit. Maybe it's obsession with sports or hobbies. Things that it's far too easy for us to tell our children are more important to us than God is. All of which result in no time for God, no time for worship, no time for church involvement. Okay, so if that's the case, then what steps can we take to recognize and more fully enjoy God's love? Well, obviously more active involvement in worship, serving the body of Christ, being a spout instead of a sponge, meaning we take our our time and our talents and our hearts and we pour into the church instead of just sitting in a pew and soaking everything up. Maybe it's in intentionally looking for things to praise God for. Last week we talked a lot about creation. You know, maybe it's just looking at the beauty of creation or the vastness of stars that we can see, but looking at it with new, fresh eyes. You know, the, the marvel of a young child who's discovering new things, learning new things for the first time. You know, maybe that toddler who has just learned to take his first steps. That sort of wonder. Maybe it comes from faithful reading and meditation of God's Word and then applying that truth in His Word to our own lives. Or spending time with Him, talking to God, praising God, declaring your trust in God, and crying out to God when you're hurting. So first we saw that we're able to enter a relationship with God. Then we saw that we can enjoy the ransom of God. But now we come to the big question of the day. Why are we here? What is his purpose for our lives? And the answer is to, well, number three, extol the reputation of God. To extol the reputation of God. That word extol means to praise enthusiastically. There's a couple of things I want you to notice here in verses five through seven. First of all, we see that God will gather his people. Again, he reminds them in these verses not to fear that he would be with them. Now, Bible scholars, they kind of struggle to identify the exact historical situation for these verses. Most of them think that Isaiah was looking ahead to the end of the Babylonian exile. But the point really is that no matter where God's people were, he was going to gather them together. He was going to bring them from every quarter. And God states it in clear-cut language that he will regather the nation of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10. He promises this. Nations, hear the word of the Lord and tell it among the far-off coasts and islands. Say, the one who scattered Israel will gather him. He will watch over him as a shepherd guards his flock. God's saying, I got this. 
Mark my words. Mark my words, liberals. Mark my words, conservatives and libertarians. Hear the word of the Lord, you premillennialists, postmillennialists. Listen to what he is saying, you Calvinists and Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals. I am not through with Israel. You see, regardless of what the situation might be, God said that he intended to regather Israel. And that's exactly what would eventually happen. They would return home from Babylon. Of course, we know that centuries later, they would be scattered once more and they would regather as a nation in 1948. But why? Why would God do that for them? What is his purpose in doing this? It's very simple. He did it for their good and for his glory. And it's the same for us. Everything that God does, he does for our good and his glory. So based on this passage, then what is our purpose here on earth? Well, you see it in verse 7, where we find that God will glory in our praise. In fact, you could paraphrase verse 7 like this. I've made everyone who bears my name, created them for my glory. So yes, we should embrace our relationship with God. We should enjoy our ransom from God. And we should most definitely extol the reputation of God because his name is great and he is greatly to be praised. Back in the mid-17th century, there was a, a summary of Christian principles, a, a catechism that was written by the Westminster Assembly. Now, this was a group of Englishmen and Scotsmen who wanted to bring the Church of England and the Church of Scotland together into greater conformity. It was called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's a very famous statement from that catechism that says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. See, that's a great summary of verse 7. God created and formed humans to be in a vital, personal relationship with Him. And the primary purpose of that relationship? To glorify God. That's why we exist for His pleasure, for His glory. But some people, they just don't get that. The year was 1808. It was just a year before the death of the famous composer uh, Franz Joseph Haydn. There was a grand performance of his outstanding oratorio called The Creation. It took place in Vienna. The old composer himself was there for the occasion. Old and feeble, he was brought into the great hall in a wheelchair. And his presence caused an electrifying enthusiasm among the audience. And as the orchestra and the chorus burst forth with full powers into this section called, and there was light, there was a spontaneous crescendo of applause that just broke out across the concert hall. Moved by the response, the elderly musician struggled to his feet and summoning all of his strength, he raised his trembling arms upward and said, no, no, 
Not from me, but from there. From, from heaven above comes all. And then he fell back exhausted into his chair, had to be carried from the hall. But the old master had made his point pretty dramatically in an unforgettable manner. And the point was simply this. The glory belongs to the creator, not the created. To God, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Okay, so church, let's, let's apply this. I mean, what does it look for us in our Christian lives to glorify God every day? Well, beyond those things that we've already touched on, you know, both personal worship, corporate worship with the body of Christ, maybe that means surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit so that he can display the fruits of the Spirit in you. Love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, Self-control. Maybe it means living lives of honesty, lives of righteousness, doing the right thing. Lives of holiness, meaning lives that are very distinct from the way the rest of the world lives. And of course, that does mean pointing other people to Jesus, both with our words and our deeds coupled together. So what does all this Isaiah 43 business mean to us? Well, first of all, when we accept God's offer of salvation and we commit our lives to bringing glory to God's name, we don't need to fear the challenges of life. Second, we can know that God is always with us. That his Holy Spirit is leading us, encouraging us, empowering us to do what he's called us to do. But you know, without that salvation that's available through Jesus, we would have something to fear. That's eternal exile from God. Of course, Isaiah's main point was that we're created to glorify God. That's the big idea behind today's message. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But how do we take that truth and put it into practice? How do we embrace our great purpose this week? Well, let me give you some, some starters. Okay, first one is this. Recall. Recall the grace of God in your own life. Write down some specific things that God has done for you. And then spend some time in prayer thanking Him and praising Him for those acts of grace in your life. So, recall the grace of God. Here's the second one. Reflect. Reflect the character of God in your life. Look for opportunities to display the character of Jesus towards others. Now that might take on a different face for different people. Maybe you need to offer someone forgiveness. Or maybe that means you need to offer an act of kindness to a, a stranger who's in need. So we recall, we reflect, and here's the third one, we relate. We talk with someone. We relate to them what God has done to show his grace to us in a personal way. And be prepared to share the gospel with that person if the conversation moves in that direction. Church, God the Father was motivated by 
love to make these profound promises in Isaiah 43 to his people. But you see, the greatest expression of God's love was actually displayed at the cross. We were made to love God forever, but guess what? Yeah, our sin goofed that up, separated us from him. But you know, the Bible says that Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So God the Son paid the ransom that allowed believers to be free again. Now we know that a ransom is something that's paid to provide the release of someone who's being held captive. Well, guess what? We were being held captive, slaves to sin and to its penalty of separation from God. But see, Jesus paid the price to free us from that entrapment in sin, death, and hell. He paid the ransom for our lives, and that ransom was his own life. It was the shedding of his own blood. But due to his sacrificial death, every person on earth has the opportunity to accept the gift of atonement that was purchased by Jesus and to be forgiven by God and to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.